If we haven't met, my name's Lance, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And it's a huge privilege, it's a joy. I often get to consider the Bible together with you. And so if you have a Bible to get today, then Matthew chapter 14 is where we're going to be. Matthew chapter 14. Let me get you caught up a little bit in case you forgot over the break, just like all those kids going back to school tomorrow. They forgot over the break everything. Let's not forget everything over the break. We have marched together faithfully through 13 chapters and a little bit, 13 and change of the book of Matthew, seeing how Jesus is the rightful king of all things. He's the king of the cosmos, and he has come to bring about a kingdom. So we've been learning a lot about what the kingdom looks like when the king comes. We've found now in Matthew 14 that this king continues to display his power over all things in the world. He has just fed the 5,000 with very little. He shows that he has complete control over all things, including minor provisions. He is a source of daily bread, seems to be the the thing that's being communicated here in Matthew 14. And then in tandem with that particular miracle— We're going to find now a well-known passage found in three of the four Gospels, Jesus walks on water. There's going to be some factors or some things that we're going to look at as we read through this, and uh, not the least of which is the identity of Jesus and his control over the elements that he can, in fact, walk on water. That's a miracle that we should note. But we're also, of course, going to consider the fact that he performs this miracle in the midst of a storm a fear-inducing storm. There's misplaced fear in the lives of the disciples. And Jesus enacts this miracle and speaks down through Scripture to us to hear to speak to these things. We may have misplaced fears. There are storms that are raging and our attention is sometimes not in the right place. I think that's a good way to start a new year as we consider these things. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 22 down through, the, through verse 33 in Matthew chapter 14. I'd love for you to follow along. The words will be on the screen behind me, but if you have a Bible with you and can rustle the pages, maybe make a note or two, that's probably best. Let's look together at this, and then I'm going to pause, and I'm going to pray for us together. It says this in the 22nd verse of Matthew 14. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So this passage is 
a response, or the, the passage is about a few responses, mainly the response of those who are nearest to Jesus to difficult circumstances, to unexpected moments, to these moments of fear. What should they do when they fear for their lives? What should they do when they fear a ghost? And Jesus speaks to them. He helps them to understand how to act in these particular moments. I'm going to take just a little bit of time to help us understand the context, though it's pretty clear. There's not a lot of work to do in a passage like this. A little bit of the context to discuss it. And then we want to look at a few aspects of Jesus' life. Aspects of Jesus' life that give us confidence that we can, in fearing him and worshiping him, that we can cast aside misplaced fears. Those things that we're going to look at, this is what we're going to be considering as we look at the text. We are going to consider the prayer life of Jesus, the intimacy that he has with the Father. So the prayer of Jesus is going to be something we consider and look at. We're going to look at together, as we're invited to by Scripture, the power of Jesus. What does it mean, just his raw power over all things? And we're going to look at the joy that we have, the comfort that we have from the presence of Jesus. So not just the fact that his praying is on display here in the text, and not just the fact that his power is on display, but that his presence is on display and promised. And then finally, we want to consider and hold on to the provision of Jesus. So his praying, his power, his presence, and his provision, those all conveniently start with P. So they look nice in your notes. You're welcome. So let's consider and just look at this text just a little bit before we start looking at the things we want to hang some thoughts on. Jesus, it says in verse 22, immediately made the disciples, and that's a word that's strong in Greek. He compelled them. He made them like you make your toddler go to the bathroom if they're about to throw up, or you, you make your dog go outside. This is the kind of thing that you push. And so the question becomes, why is Jesus in the midst of these moments, why is he pushing the disciples away? Matthew doesn't tell us, but John's gospel does tell us specifically why Jesus after, imagine now the scene, right after Jesus had fed the 5,000, there is a raucous crowd looking for miracles, and they've just received one. They've been fed. Their sense is probably, we can follow this man, and all of our needs are constantly met, and Jesus knows that it's about to get away from him. It says in the 15th verse of John chapter 6, here's a place that John records. Oh, I went to the wrong book. One second. I was about to read Luke 6.15. Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit wanted that for you. I don't know. I'm denying it. And I'm going to go to the passage that I had written down. John chapter 6, verse 15. John records that the inner life of Jesus, what he knew that we don't know, and why he immediately pressed them away is this. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus knew that his miracles were getting to the point where they were a snowball going downhill. If you don't know what a snowball is, it's when water is cold, it comes from the sky. You put it together, it holds together, and then it starts to roll and adds to itself. And Jesus is saying to himself, man, my fame is starting to add to itself. And he knows that they want to make him king in a way that he is not ready to. They would misunderstand his kingdom. And perhaps his disciples are going to get caught up in the frenzy as well. 
Because who wouldn't love to be the right hand of the king who's being placed on this new kingdom? And so Jesus does two things immediately according to Matthew 14. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I don't want that kind of fame. And so he sends the disciples into the boat. He ushers them in. He says, where can I get, them, get you out of here? He throws them into the boat and says, go across. And then he turns to the crowds and just sends them away. It's here, then, that we pick up the things to note about what Jesus does in this moment. How is he to be trusted? How is he to be seen as a king? And what we find out is that Jesus, even in the midst of his most noted miracles, takes time. He is busy. He's got a lot of ministry going on. He takes time to pray. It is worth noting, Jesus can be trusted. Fears can be brought to him because Jesus knows the source of comfort. Jesus knows where power comes from. The prayer life of Jesus is notable in the Gospels. Those who understood and bore witness to his life always included the fact that Jesus prayed continually. I remember reading Martin Luther one time at the peak of all of the craziness that was surrounding his life, said, I am so busy, I have to take hours every morning to pray. Which I think he said somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but he meant it. He found that his life was taking so much out of him that he knew he would be rendered useless if he did not commune with the Father. Jesus demonstrates this, and nearly everywhere you read about his life in the Gospels, what was his ministry like? Well, he was a praying man. Now, I don't know about you and your struggles with prayer. Maybe you've cracked the code. Maybe you just think to yourself, man, I sit down and I have one hour every single day of uninterrupted thoughts, nothing but intercession. I never think of myself. I never think of my stomach. I never get sleepy. I am nothing but a perfect prayer. If you're that person, congratulations. I am not... And sometimes, even as a pastor, I need to remember to be in awe of Jesus because a truly praying man, especially in the busyness of life, someone who doesn't rely on themselves, who doesn't forget the promises that are there before them, who thinks there's comfort elsewhere, who gets distracted easily, you find a person like that, someone who really knows how to pray, and that's amazing. I want to draw near to a person like that. Trust the person who remembers that their source of power is in communion with the Father. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us, I think, and it's why the Gospels record it over and over and over again. I'm going to give you two examples that are really close in Luke. Luke also records for us the Lord's Prayer. Remember the disciples, when they go to Jesus, they say to him, you know what, Jesus, of all the things you're teaching us, would you teach us to pray? He's marked by this. In Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, I'm going to give you a Luke 5 passage, and I'm going to show you Luke 6. This is how often it comes up, just two of them close together. You can find it elsewhere as well. And then a few verses later is when Luke's going to record the Lord's Prayer for those who are listening. But here's Luke 5, 15 and 16. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Note this, his 501c3 has taken off. The business is just roaring. The kids are in all the sports. The ministry is impactful. And what happens in verse 16? 
but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Wow, I believe that we are bad at desolation. If there is one thing that the modern Western world has lost and perhaps is the worst at, you know, like the the rankings of things, like we're the best at X, Y, Z. I think that if you looked at our day and age over the course of civilizations and we made a ranking system for silence and solitude, knowing when to be quiet, how to get alone, how to give your soul some time to marinate in the promises of God, we would rank about dead last. Like, it couldn't get worse. You don't see a lot of book titles people are rushing to saying, how to do less and get quiet and get away. That's just not the instinct. I pray that it continues on. Instead, you see things like this. How to multitask while you multitask. How to split your brain in fours. How to get more done. Do more. Productivity tip number 17. Jesus, here's a productivity tip from Jesus. Steal away some time and pray. Find communion with the Father. There's no power without it. Jesus did not cheat his way to his miracles. You don't see his life and say like, well, sure, he had powerful spiritual life and he did a lot of cool stuff, but he was God, so he was kind of cheating. No, he didn't cheat his way there. He delighted himself in his relationship with the Father. He went away to pray. Luke chapter 6. Again, I want you to think about this. You remember how numbers work. Luke chapter 5, number 6 is right after it. It's the next chapter. You'd think that we got this from Luke, but he says right there in the next chapter, in Luke 6, verse 12, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Last thing, and I'll stop belaboring the point. I just think it's so obvious when you read the Gospels with this kind of view. Think about how many of the memorable moments in the life of Jesus, if you just wanted to, from memories, give all the felt board all-star stories, you think to yourself, how many of these things come up in moments of praying? You probably didn't even notice that the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water is couched between an all-night session of prayer. But you think about things like this, the transfiguration Why were the disciples up on the mountain? How did they see that glorious instance? Oh, I remember Jesus went up there to pray. How did we get the Lord's Prayer? Oh, I remember the disciples said, would you please teach us to pray? How do we get the words of Jesus enacting the mission of his passion? How do we get the words to take this cup from me? But if not, your will be done. Oh, I remember he's praying. How do we get such a call to Christian unity and to think about what it means to love one another well? All the promises coming from the high priestly prayer of John 17. Jesus can be trusted and fear gets properly aligned in the life of a follower of Jesus by remembering to pray. Now, here's my guess. I'm not saying this in a judgy way. Here's my guess. You could improve or you could get reminded to pray. My guess. My guess is that a few minutes a day could be a slight improvement for lots of folks. I'm just living a real life, and my guess is you're living one too. So maybe here's week one. We got 51 left in 2024. Maybe we just check in every once in a while. Maybe we figure out, like, I don't know. 
I mean, I'm just going to say the thing out loud. I mean, maybe you need one or two minutes less of FSU football commentary and one or two minutes more of quietness in the car to pray. I mean, maybe. I'm I'm just throwing things out. Maybe the economy will be okay if you didn't catch up on it. Maybe the poll didn't matter. And you could just pray for a minute or two. I mean, I'm encouraging you. Jesus says, here's how you get rightly aligned in your fears in life. What's funny is he's afraid they're going to take him by force and be king. Your problems are not that. But he still knew he needed to pray. So the praying of Jesus helps us to trust him and helps us to align our fears in life. Don't forget to pray. Second, I said that we should look at the power of Jesus, and it's, it's really good. You know what drives out fear of things in this world? Greater things. I used to be afraid of, and then I realized it was nothing compared to. I think that's part of the point of this story. I used to be afraid of the wind and the waves, but did you see this guy? He commands the winds and the waves. You might be afraid of a random storm that could arise, but you should be afraid of the villain who controls the storms and would send them your way. Isn't there a whole villain named Storm? It's in one one of those things. I think it's real. My dad liked this one of the best. The X-Men, right? It's about a Twitter addiction. Anyway, so the power of Jesus, the power of Jesus demonstrated over the physical world is a revealing. There's a, a kind of sense in which Jesus every once in a while in ministry wants to break us out of the fallenness of this world and show us the real world. We think that Jesus has interrupted the real world with the supernatural, but what he's showing in these moments is what is more real than what we think is real. We're living in the fake place, the fallen place, the temporal place. Jesus inhabits the real reality where he upholds the world by the word of his power where water exists because Jesus and his power is holding the molecules together. There's no H2O without Jesus and his power. So these are moments when we're looking in here now to the great reality of all eternity. Jesus is doing this a little bit. Like, is, uh, does this mean like showing your Superman vest? Like he's, he's showing the realness of the world supernatural, life-giving, powerful things where the, the world does not push against us because of the fallenness of sin is our inheritance in Jesus. What gets undone is the curse of the fall. When the world begins to press against, the world itself has been subject to the fall of the world. The curse in the garden to the man is that, you know what? It's from the sweat of your brow now will this world produce fruit? But Jesus comes to remind us he is far more powerful. He's going to say it in stark terms later. He's going to say things like this. Why would you fear someone who could only kill you? Shouldn't you fear the one who after death could cast your soul into eternal damnation? 
power of Jesus helps us to be realigned in our fears because what was once big in our eyes, what we thought was a big deal, turns out to be not a big deal in light of him. So the power of Jesus is on display. He is moonwalking across the sea. Not backwards, but it's night. So I thought that worked. Did it work? I don't know if it worked, but it's nighttime. So he's... He's walking across the water because it it obeys him. Whatever you say, boss. They think of the little water saying, "Whatever, whatever you say, boss. One time I failed a swimming test in PE class. When I was a sophomore, I'd never taken lessons and I was horrible. I couldn't make the water do what I wanted it to do at all. At all. The water just said, no, thank you. Water's pretty powerful. Water says no thank you to rocks sometimes. It just erodes them away. Water washes homes away. Have you ever seen a flood with a big wave? It'll wash it away. Water's dangerous. Drowns people. But it falls in line when Jesus comes. Whatever you say, boss, the power of Jesus Taking time to consider his majesty. To be in awe of who he is. Helps us. This is a a real version of sort of like the, you know the little self-help books like Don't Sweat the Small Stuff? In light of Jesus, everything is smaller. So the invitation here is to say, What kind of Savior do we have who invites us to himself that the whole world obeys? And then things get smaller. They're real. I don't want to sort of uh, trivialize suffering. Suffering's real. It's experience. It's a part of life. It's just that these moments teach us to long for and to believe for things better beyond that. So it's the prayer of Jesus, his praying life, his communion with the Father that helps us to say, we can trust him. Fears get out of here. It's the power of Jesus that makes us to say, wow, now that I see him, this can be overcome. And it aligns fears. Finally, I want to, I got one more point after that. Sorry, I did the preacher thing, finally. And then I got more points. Next, the presence of Jesus. Note what Jesus wants them to do. They're shocked. They're surprised. They're saying to themselves, we're already terrified because of the sea, and then we see what we think is a ghost. And I want you just for a moment to be put in their, in their moment. They don't expect Jesus to come. They've been so gripped by it. I think this is one of the things. You know that there's a physiological reality that when fear comes, that your sight goes like this? You ever heard of tunnel vision? That's a real thing. When your blood pressure rises and your heart gets going too much and you begin to fear, you actually see less. Scientifically, you see less. The disciples are out in the middle of the night, rowing like crazy, trying to get get across a sea that is not obeying them. I don't know if you've ever been in this place, but being on lakes or seas that are rough is a horrifying experience. About 2006, I went on a Boundary Waters canoe area trip. I don't know if you know about the 
Boundary Waters, the BWCA. It's in northern Minnesota on the Canadian border. It's hundreds of thousands of pristine, uninterrupted wildlife. Nothing but rivers and lakes. It is illegal to have a motorized vehicle of any kind in the entire area for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. If you want to camp in this area or go into this area, you have to apply for a permit ahead of time so that they keep things quiet and pristine. I went on a seven-day canoe trip with my brother, my cousin, and my brother's business partner guy. And it was 80% amazing. And then there were some other moments. Including one time when we were trying to go, you have to portage a lot of times. You take all your canoe gear and put it on your back. And you put your canoe on your head. And you march through the worst mosquito-infested areas you've ever seen, getting bombarded. You have to carry this for a mile. Then you put it down on a river, and you go for a while. And then there's a few times you have to cross big lakes to get to the areas that are the best for camping. Now, a lot of it is glorious, and if the mosquitoes aren't hurting you, you see moose and you see eagles flying. We, there was a deer, just a big buck with a rack or whatever. We're just rowing along, and I come around the corner. I'm like, is that a deer? My friend Mark and I, we're just, we're just canoeing, and we just canoe for a while, like two feet from this deer who also wants to get across the lake. It was like the strangest experience. Fancy seeing you here. That's what, do you need to get over there too? Like We just canoed. He probably was terrified, and we shouldn't have done it, but we canoed with him. It's beautiful, but then also there were times when we had to get across a huge lake, and at the moment that we start to put in, we see a huge squall coming across the sky. And the wind begins to pick up, and the rain starts to come down, and it gets to the point when we're just about a half a mile out in this lake trying to get across it, that a massive rainstorm begins. Lightning crashing everywhere, huge thunder, and canoes are not easy to maneuver if you have a couple of guys and a ton of gear in this thing. Waves are going like nuts, and it was, I was terrified, like absolutely terrified. And it took us about 30 minutes to get where we needed to go in the midst of this horrible, drenching, the kind of stuff where the lightning strikes and you just shock yourself. It's a horror to feel the power of wind and waves and water and to not be able to control it. The disciples are in this moment. Their eyes have shrunk. They're that kind of fearful. So I want you to mind to tell this story about the boundary waters. But you know what didn't happen to us? We didn't see a ghost. And it wasn't the middle of the night. So we're multiplied at least times one, if not times two here. Well, times one would be itself. At least by two, if not by three here. It's the middle of the night. It's a bigger sea. And then someone, despite their tunnel vision, sees coming up behind them what they believe and perceive to be a ghost. So this is fear upon fear upon fear. And then I want you to know what Jesus says. He refocuses them. He says, take heart. And then he's going to say to them, do not be afraid. But it's that little middle phrase, these three words that make all the difference. Take heart. Do not be afraid. And I want you to imagine what else could have been said in the midst of this. He could have said, take heart. It's all a fake storm. 
It's not real. Don't be afraid. He could have said, take heart. I'm a meteorologist. It's about to pass. Do not be afraid. But the thing that makes the difference in the midst of the fear, the thing that he says focus on, that changes every dynamic in the midst of their misaligned fears, is to focus on his presence. Not what he can give. He can give a lot. He's going to command the waves to be quiet, and he's done that before. Of course, the gifts of Jesus are amazing and remarkable, but he doesn't ask them to focus on that. He says, I want you in the midst of the storm, which is real. Here it is. He's telling them, don't be afraid, and the thing's still raging. The difference, he tells them, is if you can just focus on me. The difference that makes everything change in the middle of a storm of life is the presence of Jesus, because in his presence is where fullness of joy resides. Jesus himself is our refuge and our strength. Jesus himself is our prince of peace. It is so easy in a religious life especially to want to substitute the benefits of Jesus for his presence. But you don't get any of the benefits. They're all fake. They all disappoint. It is his presence that matters. There are good earthly reasons to fear for the disciples in the midst of they are where they are. It is a real crisis, so to speak. Jesus is not minimizing nor trivializing their difficulty. He's simply saying, if you can change your gaze and you see that I'm here, that'll get you through. It is I. I mean, this is a superhero story. Jesus comes into the mix. He says, it is I. And that's all you need to know. If you have Jesus, everything will be okay. And I know that sounds like hyperbole. It's not. I wish I could hyperbolize it more. If you have Jesus, everything will be more than okay. Can we go even further? If you have Jesus, everything will be more than okay Eternally. If you have Jesus, I mean, let's just hyperbolize as much as we can. If you have Jesus, everything will be more than okay eternally with joy. Maybe I'd say it more. If you have the presence of Jesus, it'll be more than okay eternally with joy with each other. I mean, it just gets, and maybe that one you, you're bowing out, but it's still better. It's better. It's the presence of Jesus. Don't be afraid. He doesn't say, I, it's going to pass. I know the weather. I know this, whatever. I can help you. I'll fix this. He just says, it is I. I am here. In your most difficult moments, in the times when you cannot breathe, when you cannot speak, when you have to let the Spirit murmur for you because you cannot pray, may the Spirit of God say to you, Jesus is here. He's with you. He means it when he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He has never once left nor forsaken. 
The temptation in the midst of suffering in a storm of life is to believe this is the one time he'll make an exception. And maybe I would just say this. You're not so important and your cause not so terrible that God's going to deny himself and start forsaking. He's never once forsaken. He won't start with you. That's what, we gotta, that's what we tell ourselves in the midst of these storms. He is here. He is present. There's a quote from a pastor that I've enjoyed listening to. I thought this was a memorable phrase. He said, it's as though Jesus is saying, or what Matthew is telling us concerning Jesus, is that in the midst of a storm, he won't necessarily minimize the storm, but he will maximize himself. I thought, that's an interesting way to say. What makes the difference for a Christian? Do we have less storms? I mean, I guess if we live wisely-ish, maybe, but no. What makes the difference for a Christian? We have better coping mechanisms, and the difference is simply this. Jesus is present. He's there. He fights for his people. It's the gospel down at its core. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what makes the difference in the universe. It's the presence of Jesus. So look for his presence. And finally, I would say that the other thing is, is that with the presence of Jesus, we can trust that whatever is necessary, truly needed, will be provided. We don't know how much of this incident with Peter, this is the one gospel where it's recorded. You know, Mark's account was probably taken from Peter's testimony, and he leaves it out. Could have been embarrassing for Peter. Maybe he didn't want to tell the story. But Matthew tells us the story concerning Peter. We don't know how much of it is a test, what Jesus expected to happen with Peter, but we know that he actually walks on water for a good bit. One commentary says this should be seen as an example of true faith. Peter truly does believe, but it didn't survive the crisis. True faith that didn't survive the crisis. And Jesus says to him, why did you doubt? Well, doubt what? Why did you doubt that focus on Jesus and his presence would be enough to get you through? That seems to be the lesson here. That where Jesus has called, he commanded come. If Jesus has called you to a place, he will deliver you. If God has called you to a place, he will deliver you. That seems to be the thing. And this is a lesson that is so hard to find. Israel consistently failed this test as well. They get called to the promised land when they say, yeah, but we're not being provided for. I just don't know. Sometimes our focus on a perceived lack of provision makes us lose sight of the promised presence of God and the fact that he has said Come. It is the praying of Jesus, his understanding of the communion with the Father. He has a connection to the source that helps us to trust him in moments of fear. It's his power over all things that puts it in perspective. It is the presence of Jesus, promised, never forsaking those who follow him, that helps us to align our fears properly. It is the provision of Jesus. Where he commands and has called you, he will take you without fail, and you will have enough. I would perhaps end this by saying, though it can be a helpful phrase, maybe you've heard this before in the midst of difficulty, this too shall pass. Have you heard this before? 
You may be surprised to know this isn't a Bible verse. It's partly true because time has a way of passing. But I believe what Jesus teaches us is that we are not to be the supposed unnamed Eastern monarch who coined this phrase. Some people say a Persian, we just don't know. We have so much better than that. I mean, if it helps, sometimes I'll tell myself, like, it's just temporary, it's okay, I'm going to get through this, she'll be done with my teeth in a minute, you know, I'm going to get through. But I want to tell you something, we have so much better promise than Jesus. It's not merely this too shall pass. But we must remember where we're passing into. This too shall pass, and we will be received into eternal glory that will not compare with the sufferings that we're experiencing now. This too shall pass, and I will receive an unfading crown of glory in Christ. This too shall pass, but even now I'm being held by Jesus who walks with me. This too shall pass, but the Spirit of Jesus gives me His character, His nature, His fruit inside of me. This too shall pass, but God sees and He knows. And I'm learning contentment. The storms of life are nothing. And no matter what the next 51 weeks bring, are nothing. Yes, even death itself is nothing for those who have Jesus. So receive him. Confess your need of him. Commit to yourself that you'll stop trying to do it yourself. Don't be the lone ranger storm endurer. Let's grab all that Jesus is and has for us this year. Let's pray.